You know, in many different areas of life, one can be punished for unbecoming conduct, for behavior that does not fit with or is not suitable to one's position or to the organization that one represents. You know, you see this often in, in sports when players are suspended for conduct unbecoming of their team. A couple years ago, two prominent Jacksonville Jaguars were suspended and they, they said it was for violating team rules and conduct unbecoming of a Jaguars football player. One of those players had just continually gotten skirmishes with a teammate at practice. The other one had, had been confrontational towards some local media, and they said, you know, that doesn't represent our organization well, so we're going to suspend you. You see this in the, the military as well, where service members can face a variety of consequences for conduct unbecoming of an officer or a gentleman. You know, if you're a Christian, you are to live in a manner that is worthy of or befitting to your Lord Jesus Christ. And as concerning as it is when a football player or a basketball player or some other sports team member acts in a manner that is unbecoming of their team or their organization, or when a military officer acts in a manner that is unbecoming of the United States military, how much more significant for those who profess to follow Christ to live in a way that degrades or, or brings reproach on the person and work and name of Christ. Which is why it's so important for us who profess to follow him that we be cultivating a worthy walk, that we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Last month, we began to study this passage which records Paul's prayer for the Colossians, his regular pattern of praying for them, that they would walk or live in a manner worthy of the Lord. He was not praying that they would become worthy in and of themselves, but that they would live in a way that fits with the Savior who died for them. In this text, he not only prays for a worthy walk, but he teaches us about a worthy walk so that we can cultivate such a manner of life. Let's read it together, verses 9 through verse 12. Paul says this, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, We have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. In this text, Paul is praying that the Colossians would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And really the first verse, verse 9, and leads into the beginning of verse 10, building to that clause that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. We considered that together last time and saw first the foundations of a worthy walk. What is necessary in order to walk worthy of the Lord? We saw a worthy walk is built first on the work of God through the gospel. As Paul said, for this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we've not ceased to pray for you. 
What was it that Paul and Timothy had heard about? Well, it was the work that God had already done in the Colossians through the gospel. Back in verses 3 to 8, he had recounted that he was thankful for the fact that the gospel had been proclaimed among them and that it had, they'd responded in faith in Christ and the gospel was bearing fruit in their lives and in producing things like love for one another. And it was in response to this knowledge of God's work in their lives through the gospel that Paul gave thanks, gave thanks and, and prayed for them to walk worthy. You see, Paul understood you can't walk worthy of the Lord unless you first have been saved, unless you are a Christian. You must have salvation, have regeneration and new life in Christ in order to walk worthy of Him. But if you are a Christian, then the eager expectation and anticipation is that you will live in such a manner. But that doesn't happen automatically, which led us to a second foundation of a worthy walk, which is the prayers of the saints for one another. Paul said, for this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we've not ceased to pray for you and to ask these things. You see, when Paul heard of the work of God through the gospel, he didn't just say, all right, I can check them off my list, nothing more to be done here. No, he heard of that work, and so now he, he prayed for them that they would grow and that they would live in a manner worthy of the Lord. Paul understood that the prayers of the saints for one another are a vital foundation of a worthy walk. If we're going to walk worthy of the Lord, we need to be praying to that end for ourselves and for one another. But Paul didn't just pray that they would walk worthy. He prayed for a third foundation of a worthy walk which was the knowledge of God's will through His Word. He prayed that you would be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul understood you can't walk worthy of the Lord unless you first understand what the will of the Lord is. We don't have the knowledge we need to walk worthy of Him. We need wisdom and understanding from God to know His will so that we can understand and apply that in our life. And we find that will in the Scriptures as we learn of Him. And the goal of that knowledge is not just head knowledge, that we we can pass a test about those things, but that it would lead to the transformation of our life. So we saw the foundations of a worthy walk. And then secondly, we saw the focus of a worthy walk. At the beginning of verse 10, he said, We pray so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects. Having heard of the work of God and their life through the gospel, they pray, he prayed that they would be filled with the knowledge of His will so they would walk worthy, so that they would live in a manner fitting with what Christ had done for them. And what does that mean? Well, he really defines it with a a parallel phrase, to please Him in all respects. Big picture, what does it mean to walk worthy of the Lord? It means you live in every area of your life with a focus on pleasing Him, doing what He desires, what He calls you to, not what you desire, what you want. You submit your life in every area to Him. Well, the remaining part of verse 10 and verses 11 and 12 flow out of this idea of walking worthy of the Lord. They really flesh out what a worthy walk looks like. 
In the remaining verses, there's four participles that hang off of that idea of walking worthy. You typically recognize participles in English by the ing that they end with. Three out of our four, you'll recognize them in that way. He says we're to be bearing fruit and increasing in the knowledge of God. We're strengthened with all power and we're to be giving thanks. These verses help us to know what a worthy walk looks like, how to to pray for and cultivate that in our life. So let's consider this morning, thirdly, the features of a worthy walk. The features of a worthy walk. What does a worthy walk look like? Well, the first feature we see is its fruit, that it is bearing fruit in every good work. Back at verse 10, he says, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work. Earlier in this chapter, Paul had referred to the fact that the gospel was bearing fruit and increasing, and here now he, he teaches and prays that the believers would be bearing fruit and increasing. And this first participle, bearing fruit, is an active verb. It's something we are to work at continually. We're to be bearing fruit actively, striving to bear fruit in every good work. You know, Paul did not shy away from the fact that believers work to produce fruit in their life and that they do good deeds. But Paul is crystal clear on the relationship between that fruit and good deeds and our salvation. Turn back a a few pages to Ephesians chapter 2 where we see Paul's clearest commentary on this in some familiar verses where Paul writes in verse 8 of chapter 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. Paul is crystal clear, you and I are not saved because of our good works. We do not do good works to merit salvation from God. That is a different gospel. It is a a false gospel. And yet, Paul recognized that good works should be characteristic of the believer's life. Verse 10, he goes on and says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If you've completed the partner's discipleship study, you may recall how Mike Fabares summarizes this with some math equations. You may not be a math person. I've always liked math and middle school math major in college, and and so he gives some math equations that I find helpful in in seeing this relationship. He, He describes the wrong way some people think, a false gospel, this way. He says you take the gospel plus a response to the gospel of repentance and faith plus good works, and that equals becoming a Christian. That's a false gospel. It's adding works works-based righteousness to the gospel of grace. Some people get it wrong in that they eliminate works from the equation at all, and they just say, well, the gospel plus a response equals being a Christian with no understanding or, or perspective of how good works factor in. But he says the right biblical way to think 
is that the gospel plus the response of repentance and faith equals being a Christian plus good works. You see, when we become a Christian, we will do good works. That has nothing to do with how we became a Christian, but it has everything to do with the reality that we are. Jesus put it this way. He he made it clear that all Christians, all disciples will will bear fruit. In in John 15, 8, he said, my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Or in the parable of the soils in Matthew 13, 23, when he said that the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it and indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. You see, not all Christians will bear the same fruit, not all Christians will bear the same amount of fruit, but all Christians will bear fruit, including good works. Christians who are walking worthy of the Lord will be actively engaged in bearing fruit. Paul prays to that end for them. Now, sometimes the Scriptures refer to fruit more in relationship to our character as Christians. Think of it as the fruit that is produced within us. Things like the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23 love, joy, peace, patience, and so on, the attitudes that characterize a believer who is growing to become more in the likeness of Christ. And certainly it's right that we pray for such fruit and that we work to cultivate that character fruit in our life as we are striving to grow to be more like Christ, that we are putting off sin and renewing our mind and putting on righteousness. But here, Paul connects bearing fruit with good works, more of that fruit that is produced not in us, but the fruit that is produced through us. Paul refers to this in in many different occasions as well. In in Romans chapter 1, verse 13, he prays and and expresses his desire that he would go to be with those in Rome, and, and he says, he desires that, that I may obtain some fruit among you also. Paul was praying and desiring to go to be to Rome in order that some fruit might be produced among them. What kind of fruit? Well, certainly some of that may have been unbelievers coming to faith in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 16, 15, Paul referred to the household of Stephanus, who were the first fruits in Achaia. This was a household who had heard the gospel and had responded to the gospel. He says, that's fruit that has been produced. Many of the folks in Rome, though, were believers, and Paul was eager to minister to them and to see some result in their life as a result of what he would do, to see that fruit produced in their life. In Romans chapter 15, Paul refers to a gift that was given by believers to to be taken to Jerusalem to help the poor there, and he refers to that and he says, having put my seal on this fruit of theirs. So we can produce fruit in in how we impact others with the gospel and encouraging other believers and in being generous and doing good for others and to others. 1 Peter 2.12 summarizes this in some way where it says, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers, they may because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. 
Peter says, if you live in righteousness and you practice good deeds, the hope is that others who, who are not followers of Christ will see your example, the testimony of your life, and that one day they will glorify God. So if you want to walk worthy of the Lord, be actively engaged in striving to bear fruit both in your life and through your life in every good work. But don't forget the larger context here. Paul is not just exhorting them to bear fruit, he is praying for them that they would bear fruit. Why is Paul praying to that end? How Why why is it necessary that he would pray for that? Well, I think Paul understood the temptation and the challenge as believers to to produce a smaller harvest of fruit than we ought as it relates to the, the good works and the opportunities for ministry and impact that God has given us. It's easy to miss and neglect those things, and so Paul prayed for them. We need to pray for ourselves and for one another that we would recognize the opportunities for good works, simply that we would have eyes to see the people around us and the opportunities around us that God provides. I don't know about you, but it's, it's so easy for me to get focused on just the details of my life, the things I need to do, the things on my to-do list, the, the realities of going on in my world, and miss the opportunities that God has all around me. Pray that we would recognize those opportunities, but pray that we would be faithful in those opportunities as well, not just seeing them, but seizing them, taking those opportunities. Maybe it's sending an encouraging text to someone or making a meal or sharing the gospel with somebody when you have that opportunity in a conversation with a coworker or a neighbor or a family member, somebody you're interacting with at a place of business. And pray that, that we would be fruitful in those opportunities, that God would use those good works to accomplish his purposes in the lives of others that we interact with. That just as the gospel was bearing fruit in the Colossians, it will bear fruit in the lives of others, leading to salvation and to transformation. Paul prayed that in walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, they would be bearing fruit in every good work. The first feature of a worthy walk is its fruit. The second feature we see is its growth, increasing in the knowledge of God. He prays that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, verse 10, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, you recall that knowledge was one of the foundations of a worthy walk. You cannot walk worthy of the Lord without a knowledge of his will. At the same time, it's a feature of a worthy walk. Part of walking worthy is an increasing knowledge of God. You see, the reality is we never master the knowledge of God. While it's true that you can know God truly and rightly, you can have an accurate understanding of God. The reality is, though, you cannot know God fully. You cannot think exhaustively about Him. You can think accurately about Him, but you can never plumb the depths of all that is true of God. And if you and I are going to live in a manner worthy of Him, we will always be yearning to know more 
of him. You know, this second participle, increasing, interestingly, is a passive verb. It's not active like bearing fruit. It's passive, something done to us. Now, now don't misunderstand. That doesn't mean we aren't actively striving to increase in our knowledge of God. We, we are called in scriptures to, to actively seek to learn the truth about God and to know Him as we read and study and meditate on the scriptures and as we contemplate the greatness of God revealed in creation and read books of theology and meditate on the great truths of God's attributes in nature and listen to and sing songs with rich truths about God, all of those things we do to increase our knowledge of God. But this passive verb is a reminder that we are dependent on God's self-revelation and the illumination of the Spirit in order to know Him. We need God to reveal Himself and to open our eyes and our hearts to embrace the truth about Him. You know, this increasing knowledge of God is, is both mental, head knowledge about Him, And it's experiential, it's relationship as we know Him and have an intimacy with Him. We're to grow in our knowledge about God, but to know God is not simply to know about Him, it is to know Him in relationship. I think of of Job, a man who had a good understanding of God at the beginning of the book of Job, but having gone through some incredible trials and having interacted with his friends and then having heard from God the truth about himself at the end of that book in Job 42.5, he says, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and repent in dust and ashes. What's he saying? He's saying my, my head knowledge, the things I knew were true, I have now lived out experientially in a way that I, I see you. It's a relational knowledge, not just having thought of you. If you want to walk worthy of the Lord, be committed to a growing knowledge of God. But again, don't forget the context. Paul is praying for this in them. And we should pray for ourselves and for one another that that we would have an increasing desire to know God, that we would long to know Him more, that we would be humble and eager to learn and accept the truth of God and that we would seek increasing knowledge of Him through the study of His Word and all the means at our disposal to understand more of Him through what He has revealed in His Word and that God would graciously open our eyes and illumine our hearts to know Him. So the first feature of a worthy walk is its fruit, bearing fruit in every good work. And the second feature is its growth, increasing in the knowledge of God. You know, if you're like me and you you consider this passage and, and even those first two features, you desire that. If you're a believer, you want that. You want to be faithful, to bear fruit in the, the good works and to grow in your knowledge of God, but you, you can easily be a bit intimidated and overwhelmed by that. Say, how can I possibly do that? I miss so many opportunities day after day. How can I be faithful in those ways? Well, thankfully, we see a third feature of a worthy walk, an encouraging feature, and that is its strength, its strength, being strengthened with all power. Notice verse 11, a third participle, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness 
and patience. This third participle, strengthened, is again a passive verb. It's something God does. I love what Douglas Moo, a commentator, writes of this. He says, living a life worthy of the Lord is a high and difficult calling. In typical New Testament fashion, Paul reminds us that God gives what he demands. What an encouragement. God calls us to walk worthy and he strengthens us to do that. Notice the extent of this strengthening. He prays that they would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Not strengthened with a little more power than you have already, but strengthened with all power and with that power that is according to his glorious might. If you have a New American Standard, you notice there's a little marginal translation related to that phrase, his glorious might. It says literally, the might of his glory. Think of the sun, the glory of the sun. You walk outside in Texas in the summer when there's not a lot of clouds and that sun is just bright and glorious. But you know that sun is not just something cool to look at. There is a power that is behind that glory. If you sit outside for too long, you will get baked and burned by that sun. There's a power that goes with that glory, and that's what he's saying. God is glorious, and that glory, the sum of who he is and his character, comes with a, with a power, a, a mighty control of all things and authority and ability, and, and we are strengthened according to that. Notice it's strengthened according to, not of or by or out of. It's not that God gives us a little bit of his glorious might, but that he strengthens us according to it. William Hendrickson, the great commentator, writes this. He says, in accordance with is stronger than of or by. When the multimillionaire gives of his wealth to some good cause, he may be giving very little. But when he donates in accordance with his riches, the amount will be substantial. He's not just giving us a little bit. He's giving in accordance with the amazing glory of might of his glory. We can be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. And what's the result of this strengthening? Why are we strengthened? He says it's for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. These are very similar words, steadfastness and patience. Some versions translate it as endurance. It's a a word that can mean to bear up under. Patience has the idea of long-suffering or patient endurance, of forbearance. They they can be used in very similar ways. Sometimes the first of these words, endurance or steadfastness, is used more in the context of enduring trials. 2 Corinthians 6.4 connects endurance to hardships and trials. Patience is more of a, a general attitude towards either our circumstances or towards people. So we can be strengthened according to God's power so that we attain endurance or steadfastness and patience. Why do we need endurance and patience? Well, part of that is, is 
We need to be strengthened to endure whatever circumstances God brings into our life. If you look back just one page, you, you see that familiar verse, Philippians 4.13, where Paul said, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You know, that famous field goal verse or whatever, you know, I can do anything. I can, you know, conquer the world because of this power that Christ works in me. No, it's, it's not that God gives us a license to be able to do anything. What, what's the context? Notice what Paul says in verse 11. He says, not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means and also how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So what is Paul talking about? He's saying, I can endure, I can be content in any circumstance God brings for me because of the strength that he provides. That's really what Paul is praying for the Colossian believers, that they would be strengthened to have endurance and patience in whatever circumstances God provides. You walk worthy of the Lord by patiently enduring all that comes in this life through the strength that God supplies. Not only are we strengthened to endure whatever God brings in our life, but we are strengthened to keep running the race that God has before us in this life. I love Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, which says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles, and let us run with endurance the race marked or set before us. This life is a long race to be run in faithfulness to the Lord, and it's a race that requires endurance. It's not just a sprint, you know, go hard for a day and you're done. It's day after day, month after month, year after year of faithfully living for Christ, and that requires endurance. He says we have that endurance as, verse 2, we're fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Paul is praying that the Colossian believers would have endurance and patience to face the trials and challenges of life and to persevere in the race that Christ had laid out for them. Now, how are we strengthened by God's power? How do we take hold of His glorious might? Well, as I mentioned, this this participle is passive. God does this. This is a gift of God's grace to strengthen us. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, you remember Paul had appealed to the Lord to remove the thorn in his flesh multiple times, and God's response was, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Paul said, most gladly, therefore I will rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. You see, when we're weak, and we know we're weak, and we are not ashamed of our weakness, but we recognize this means I need God's grace. God's grace is sufficient for us. God's power comes when we are weak and when we know we can't do it on our own. God responds with grace and strength. Again, this doesn't mean that there's nothing we can do to cultivate that in our life. I don't think it's an accident that this idea of being strengthened comes right after increasing in the knowledge of God. How do you, 
have the, the strength to endure with patience the things in this life? Well, part of it is as you deepen your knowledge of God and His character, you can persevere through those things with the right perspective. The more you and I know and understand God, the more we're strengthened to endure. That's why fixing our eyes on Jesus is so important to running the race with endurance as we continue to focus on Him. And again, don't forget the larger context. Paul is praying for this in them. He is praying that they would be strengthened in this way. We are strengthened as we pray for one another to that end. Are you facing difficulty or know of others who are challenging circumstances that they wouldn't have picked for themselves? Well, pray for strength to endure. Are you still running the race of the Christian life? If you're breathing in this room and you're a Christian, you are, and you know others who are, pray for strength to endure, that they would run with endurance the race set before them. We need to be praying to this end that God would give us strength and and that we would have the endurance and patience needed in this life. So a third feature of a worthy walk is its strength. But a life worthy of Christ does not simply make it through the trials and difficulties. We don't just grin and bear it. As one commentator said, Paul evidently did not think of discipleship as a matter of grim endurance. For we see a fourth feature of a worthy walk, which is its perspective that of joyously giving thanks. Joyously giving thanks. Notice the end of verse 11 into verse 12 says, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, that idea of joyously could go with the preceding participle and phrase of of endurance and patience or steadfastness and patience. The ESV translates it for all endurance and patience with joy. But I think it's best to connect joyously, as the New American Standard does, with the next participle, that of giving thanks. All the participles have a prepositional phrase modifying them, and and this seems to go with the last one, modifying giving thanks, that we should be joyously giving thanks. And this fourth participle, giving thanks, is again an active verb. We are to work to cultivate this mindset and this response in life. The consistent perspective of the believer that we must work to maintain is that of joyful thanksgiving. Paul puts it crystal clear in 1 Thessalonians 5.18 when he says, In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now this is not just having sort of a Pollyanna perspective that sort of naively sees the best in everything and so is thankful. No, this joyful thanksgiving is rooted in the objective reality of our salvation. See, it's not just that we are commanded to always be thankful. And so you say, okay, fine, I'll choose to be thankful because God tells me I have to be thankful. That's not the idea. The idea is that we actually always have something to legitimately be thankful for. That when you evaluate the sum total of your life, no matter how miserable your yesterday was or your today is going to be or your tomorrow will be in various areas of life, 
you still have a legitimate reason for joyful thanksgiving. And it's because of what God has done on your behalf in Christ. Notice verse 12, he says, we're to be joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. I want you to think about things that people have to qualify for. This verse refers to being qualified. You know, maybe that's admission to a particular school where you're trying to get a a certain test grade or something so you can qualify for entrance to a school or a particular program of study. You know, maybe it's receiving some benefit like Social Security or Medicare insurance that requires qualifying with a certain age or work history or those things. Or, you know, we'll hear a lot about qualifying over the next year in anticipation of the 2020 Paris Olympic Games as athletes seek to qualify to be a part of those events. You know, the Olympics are, are different than other races. You can't just pay an entrance fee. You know, last, last summer, my kids convinced us to do the Trophy Club 4th of July 5K race, in spite of the fact that we had no qualifications to be there. Um, but we paid money, and so we got to do it, and we even got a t-shirt. It was great, but we didn't do it this year. Um, but, um, but you can't do that for the Olympics, can you? You can't say, well, I'm just going to pay the entrance fee, and I'll, I'll be a part of the Olympics. No, you have to qualify. There are certain standards and a process that athletes must go through in order to prove that they deserve to be there. Well, notice what this verse says. It says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us. If you speak English, you read that and you say, wait a minute, that doesn't sound quite right. <laughs> The Father has qualified us. That's passive. Like, you don't get qualified. You have to qualify. I can't say, well, you know what? Michael Phelps qualified me. No, no. He qualified himself. But here, it says God qualified us. One commentator puts it this way. He says, God the Father has himself provided what sinners need to be considered worthy to join the people of God. This is shocking and amazing. God qualified you and me if you are in Christ. Not because we deserved it, we didn't. Not because we have any merit for that, we don't. Not because we meet the standard, we fall woefully short but He qualified us. How did He do that? Colossians 1 goes on in verse 13 and says, For He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Lord willing, we'll consider this more next week, but we see that God has qualified us and we are to be thankful because He rescued us and He's forgiven us and He's done so at the cost of His Son, the one who paid the price of our redemption through his death on our behalf. You see, Christ lived the life we can't live, a life of perfect righteousness, and he died the death we deserve so that if we repent and believe the gospel, God wipes away our guilt and he credits us with Christ's righteousness. He forgives us and he transfers us into the kingdom of his beloved son, and we now share in the inheritance of the saints, even though we deserve none of that. He alone 
qualified us. And it's because of that work on our behalf that we can be joyously giving thanks regardless of whatever else is going on in life. No matter what else is going on in life, when you add all that up together with the work that God has done, the right response is joyously giving thanks to the Father. Again, don't forget the larger context. Paul is praying for this in them. It's, it's so easy to lose sight of what God has done for us, especially in the midst of hard times and difficult circumstances, to lose sight of that. And so Paul prays that they will be joyously giving thanks, that they will keep their eyes fixed on what God has done for them in Christ, and that that will, pre- pre- uh, will produce a joyful thanksgiving in their life. We need to pray for ourselves and for one another to that end that that we will keep that perspective so that we can be joyously giving thanks to the Father. So God has made us worthy through Christ. He has qualified us and now it is our joy to seek to live in a manner worthy of Him. What does that look like? What are the features of such a worthy walk? Well, it's bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God and being strengthened with God's power to endure and joyously giving thanks. You know, it's the reality that God has qualified us through the work of His Son on our behalf that it's our joy to celebrate together now in in the Lord's table, reflecting on the fact that we are not worthy, but that Christ is and that Christ is has redeemed us, that through Him we have the forgiveness of sins. Now this memorial, the Lord's table, is for those who are in Christ, for those who have turned from their sin and who are trusting in Christ alone for their salvation. And it's it's for those who are Christians who are not holding on to sin, but who long to and are striving to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respect. As 1 Corinthians 11, 28 says, a man must examine himself And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. As the men come, let's prepare our hearts to do that together by taking a moment to confess our sins to the Lord and to focus our hearts and minds on Him. Our Father, we come to you humbly acknowledging that we have no basis in and of ourselves to be in relationship with you and that our sins deserve only your judgment and wrath and yet we are humbled and amazed at your work on our behalf to qualify us. Lord, for those of us in this room who are true Christians who have repented and trusted in Christ and who see that work producing transformation in our life, Lord, we recognize that's nothing in and of ourselves. There's nothing good in us that warrants that. It's only your grace. And Lord, we come confessing that we don't live worthy of you as we ought or as we desire. Lord, we so often please ourselves instead of you and 
we acknowledge and confess those realities that we oftentimes depend on our own strength rather than yours, and we are so prone to grumble and complain rather than to give thanks, and we miss opportunities to do good and to serve and bless others because of our selfishness. And we ask that you would forgive us for these things and for many other sins that we have committed even in our actions and words and deeds. Lord, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for the forgiveness that is ours in him, and we pray that we would reflect on all that he's done together now as we celebrate the Lord's table. We commit it to you in Christ's name. Amen.